Well, once again, uh, Twitter has uh, distracted me. We're going to be taking your phone calls today at 877-753-3341. We have that a microphone heading that direction. I can't really. I'm going to have to. Eh, there we go. <laughs> 877-753-3341 is the phone number. But um, uh, Alan in uh, Georgia was having a not a conversation or just some, you know how Twitter is. And here is this person. I'm not even going to give the name. Uh, Well, human zygotes, embryos, and fetuses are not children. Which unwilling human's body do you have the right to be inside? And I... Literally, it was like, you know, one minute before the program started. And I actually did have time to respond to it. But... um, just think about the perversity, the 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 evil, the the depravity, the the that which makes every demon in hell rejoice. Thinking that goes into saying, which unwilling human's body do you have the right to be inside? This is this is what motherhood is. This is this is you want to see the destruction of humanity of of uh, of human let's not even talk about human flourishing just just simply human survival reduce the beauty and all of us who are parents know this the beauty of the conception of a child to which unwilling human's body so this human of course has to be a female the the gender binary is real uh, that's science <laughs> Um, and so here is a, a woman who is willing to engage in sexual behavior, but not willing to live with the results of said sexual behavior. So that, so that the result of that sexual behavior is, is an invasion. That's the perversity of the society that we live in. Um, wow. I... Deep breaths, deep breaths. We need to have deep breaths here. Um, so I, I'm not sure how much of uh, I. We scheduled a church history session for Apologia Academy for tonight months ago, and of course nobody knew when the debates were going to be, if there were going to be any debates months ago. Um, so I'm going to be able to catch like the first 45, 50 minutes maybe of the presidential debate this evening. Um, But I just thought I'd comment on the fact that there is now the controversy over earbuds. Now, you know, I, I can talk about this. Okay. This is, yeah. um, This was, this would not have been something that would have been relevant when I first started doing debates, but remember Peter Popoff? Uh, How many of you are old enough to remember Peter Popoff? And, his miracles of of divine knowledge, which are actually an, an earwig, a, an in-the-ear receiver, uh, where his wife offstage is reading off information that she's gotten from wandering around amongst the people before the, the whole thing started, and reading cards that people have filled out and things like that, and giving him his supernatural knowledge. Um, this is a real issue. I mean, if you want to know what is inside the mind 
of each individual debater. Um, now this, <laughs> I'm just thinking about a brother Ventilation. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and all of his guys running around up there. Obviously, they wouldn't. They're probably those guys are sitting around going, "What? What's, what's the problem with having?" Everybody and their uncle uh, in your ear, handing you stuff, telling you things. That's that's how you do debates. So that <clears throat> that yeah. But uh, no, I I think you should have. I, I think Chris Wallace should just walk up there with a flashlight and <laughs> just check them both uh, <laughs> to make sure uh, that they're they're operating uh, either fairly. I mean, it's sort of like doping and cycling. You know, back in the Lance Armstrong years, uh, everybody was doing it. So. It's whoever had the best doping routine uh, ended up winning. Well, who's got the best best equipment here? And uh, I, I know that Trump wouldn't want that. That's that's not his thing. But <clears throat> it does make you go, hmm, uh, that so far Joe Biden has said, nobody's checking my ears. Uh-uh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's, that's, that's too much fun. Um Unfortunately, uh, Rich is uh, screening calls, so I'm not sure if he's going to hear this. I wanted to show you something here on the screen, um, and I'm just trying to tear him away from. But I, I saw I, I wanted to show you this meme. Check this meme out. Uh, you've got Biden Harris uh, text ready to three zero three three zero, but if you divide 2020 by six six six. It's three zero three three zero. Well, it's actually three zero three three zero three three zero three three zero three three zero on and on and on and on. But <clears throat> it's it's um and then it's got a picture uh that was John Hagee, wasn't it? I think it was John Hagee down there. Uh <laughs> that was a really good screen cap of uh of him going, Hey, hey, look look at that. <laughs> Uh, you got to laugh at something uh, these days. Uh, you really do. Uh, and then before we start taking our uh, phone calls, in fact, you know, I sort of need to um, fire up the thing so I can see what the, the, call, the calls are. Um, it's it's sort of sad. We are... Um, our phone system is many, many years old. It's still a, a, a decent phone system. But... Its interface with a computer is via Flash. And if anybody knows, uh, Flash is going bye-bye in like 90 days <clears throat> or less. And uh, so I don't know what we're going to do then. <laughs> String in two cans, yeah. Um, no, there's there's got to be some upgrade or something we can get uh, because I have to sit there and click on the yes, use Flash thing and all the rest of that stuff to... To bring it up, so we can uh, talk to the folks on the on the phone. But one more thing before we go to the uh, to the calls. Um, now this is the Babylon B. So obviously Babylon B satire. Well, who knows anymore? You can't tell between the not the B and the B anymore. It's just 2020. But I found this interesting. Uh, this was today, and it says uh, bombshell report reveals Christian believes Christian things. Now, what's interesting is then what they entered into Twitter said, 
USA, U.S., a bombshell report put out by the corporate press today revealed that a Catholic believer believes things that the Catholic Church teaches. I think is what it stopped at that point, but I'm assuming that's what the rest of it said. And it was, um, it shows the AP, the Associated Press uh, tweet, which a lot of people were retreating. Amy Coney Barrett, President Trump's Supreme Court nominee, has close ties to a charismatic Christian group that holds men are divinely ordained as the head of the family. (laughs) Now, every non-woke, biblically literate Christian uh, just started chuckling upon hearing... uh, Is there anyone that works the Associated Press that's ever actually read the Bible? Probably not. I mean, it's highly unlikely. Uh, the, The level of ignorance of the press, of history and the Christian faith together is truly astonishing. It really, really is. Um, so they're, whoever wrote this is, is probably like, oh, I can't believe anybody would believe this, and, and they've never read Ephesians or anything like that. So they're, uh, Corinthians, all that stuff, that's, that's not, <clears throat> not something that would be a part of their, uh, their particular understanding of things. Um, but what caught my attention is on the serious side of things, is I have said for a very, 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 very long time that the challenges that were coming our direction and are now here in full were going to be pushing Protestants, believing historical Protestants, into ever closer contact with Roman Catholicism and therefore requiring us to be all the more aware of what the real issues are. And I've also been saying for a long, long time, I think the result of that is going to be that there are going to be people who are going to come to the conclusion that the real dividing line issues um, are not that important. And so, I mean, how important is it to insist that to, to believe that one is made right before God by the imputation of Christ's righteousness over against to believe it is an infusion of grace that makes you subjectively pleasing to God. How many people even think about that in a day? And hence, how easy is it for someone to go, oh, you know, I don't know. I, it's, and it's, it reminds me of, of what I've said before, that when we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, I'll be preaching on why we believe in the Trinity on Sunday. Um, at church, and the fact is, large portion of American evangelicals do not think about the doctrine of the Trinity over the course of a 24-hour period. I would say many American evangelicals do not think about the doctrine of the Trinity over the course of a week between church services. And hence, to press issues such as the distinction between 
true Trinitarianism and something like modalism, oneness theology, it's no wonder that in the Christian music area, nobody cares if you're oneness. Uh, Phillips, Craig, and Dean got away with that and continue to get away with that. Um, Because if you, in your heart of hearts, realize it doesn't really have any bearing on my life, so how can I really view it as being definitional? Same thing in regards to justification. And unfortunately, a lot of non-Catholics reject Roman Catholicism for all the wrong reasons. The real reasons have to do with the sacrifice of Christ and how one has peace with God, um, as well as the sufficiency and authority of Scripture. And then there are lots of secondary issues that become the primary issues for a lot of folks, but they're just matters of taste rather than actual matters of conviction. So what caught my eye was the, the title was bombshell report reveals Christian believes Christian things. Now it's probably because you just couldn't put anything longer than that. It's probably a limitation to how much was going to appear in the title. But um, when we, when we think about Amy Coney Barrett, and issues of worldview, what you believe about the depravity of man has a deep impact upon your worldview. And Roman Catholicism, primarily post-Trent, and Augustinian Roman Catholicism would have room for this, but Trent had to... um, shut down some of the streams of thought that would come from Augustinianism because the reformers had amplified those things. And so when it comes to natural law, dependence upon divine revelation, all these things, there are fundamental differences between a biblical perspective and a Roman Catholic perspective. And that's not going to be changing even if Francis, because I don't think Francis believes a lot of these things, Francis is basically a Marxist, but uh, and Marxist view of mankind is rapidly anti-Christian. I don't, I don't even know how your Roman Catholics are doing this right now, because you know in your heart of hearts, you know in your heart of hearts that that's where where Francis is, and I and you're sitting there going, but God won't let him teach it. <laughs> yeah, but <clears throat> who's he? Who is he putting in all the positions of leadership in the church around the world today, guys? Think about it. He's packing the court. That's exactly right. Uh, uh, Francis is packing the court with his fellow Marxists. And you, you just, you just got to open your eyes and see what's going on. Anyway, uh, this is important stuff. And right now everybody's talking about Amy Coney Barrett and, and we're talking about the explosion of nasty anti-Christian vitriol from all of the elites. If you haven't seen that 98.5% of the mainstream media hates the Christian faith, you're just not, you're just not even looking. Um, this Supreme Court pick is going to, to anyone who wants to keep your eyes open and listen, prove these things to you. Um, but you can't expect these people to distinguish between Roman Catholics and Protestants. And in fact, 
the tendency in the media is to take Roman Catholicism as the default, and the Protestants are just those weirdos in the in the uh, Appalachian Mountains someplace playing with snakes or something like that. Uh, that's really how they view things. And so, I told you it was coming, and uh, and it is, and it's here, and uh, that's what we're that's what we're dealing with. So. Anyway, all right, so we decided to open up the phones today, and uh, that's always scary. You never know what's going to be the, on the other end of, uh, of phone lines. Uh, it can always be interesting. Let's uh, look here. I guess we're just starting at the top, and uh, let's talk with uh, Trevor in Missouri. Hi, Trevor. Hi, Dr. White. How are you? Good. Quick testimony. Um, I came across your debates um, right after I was converted in 2014. Um, I came across actually a Stephen Lawson sermon, probably somewhere around 2016, and to make a long story short, I segued into your debate, and uh, this coming October 18th, me and my significant other are actually going to be baptized and joining a 1689 confessional church. So <laughs> I just wanted to thank you for your ministry. It's really changed my life, flipped it upside down for the better, not for the worse, <laughs> and uh, I just wanted to thank you for that. That's great. That's great. Um, I have a question really quick. I uh, recently had a discussion with a Roman Catholic convert, um, and he was trying to challenge um, how we determine which texts um, actually comprise the canon, who come along and establish that. Obviously, he was making the argument that Rome um, had the authority to do that sort of thing. Right. My question is, and I I actually gave Rich the wrong topic, so I'm sorry, Rich. Um, My question is, concerning the Old Testament scriptures— how did the Jewish community determine what their canon was, by what authority, or what did they appeal to to determine their canon and to say, here is our books, here is our Hebrew Bible? Right. Uh, uh, Rich says he forgives you. I just wanted you to know that. Uh, I just, you know, We don't want anyone carrying around a lot of guilt or anything like that. Um, it's that French courtesy. <laughs> um Interestingly enough, even if we had gone with the uh, the oral versus written tradition uh, topic, which is what I see on my screen here, would have come to the same thing because uh, of uh, what literally back in the 90s, and you don't sound like you were doing a lot of this stuff back in the 90s, but back in the 90s... Uh, Born in the 90s, I'm sorry. There you go, see? Um uh, if if you were listening to Catholic answers and some uh, Saint Joseph's communication and things like that, you would have hear, heard them once in a while discussing what's called the White Question. And the White Question is a question that I developed on the fly, sitting on the side of a bed in a guest room um, in uh, Massachusetts, uh, doing a radio program with a convert to Roman Catholicism by the name of Jerry Matitix. Um And he and I had debated uh, the apocryphal books at Boston College the preceding weekend. And we had been told that the radio program we were supposed to do had been canceled. So we were driving around. We lit, turned on the radio. There he is. Then they're going, and we wonder where James White is. So we had been where so I've always wondered really exactly how that happened. But anyway, so I called in. We started debating again, basically, and out of the blue, I came up with a question for Jerry Matitix, which eventually has become known as the white question. And what it does is it reverses uh, exactly what you experienced, and what you experienced is what I've experienced and, and everyone else has ever experienced who deals with 
modern Roman Catholics, they they go to the issue of the canon so that the unstated presuppositions that lie in the authority claims of Roman Catholicism can be more obscured, in essence. They can claim to have a kind of canonical authority without coming out and really explaining how that works and how that works, especially historically, in light of the fact that there is no dogmatic definition of the canon of Scripture from Rome's perspective until April of 1546. Now, they'll talk about what happened in the early councils like Carthage and and things like that in the 4th century, but those were not ecumenical councils. Those were local councils. And so there is no dogmatic definition of the extent of the entire biblical canon within Roman Catholicism until I think it was April 18th, if I recall correctly. I need to check that date. But April of 1546 at the Council of Trent. And so the idea that they present to us is, well, if you don't have someone who can define for you what the books of Scripture are, then having inspired books is irrelevant because you don't know which ones are rich. And so there is an assertion of a kind of canonical authority in the church that is not then backed up with any kind of argumentation. It's just a functional thing. It's like, well, nobody knew until the church told everybody. And you, it's, it's playing on the ignorance of most Christians of the early church and of the whole process of canonization in history, what the nature of the canon is. When was the last time you actually heard a sermon uh, on the subject of canonicity or the canon or things like that? It's, it's, it's not something that, that people really normally spend a whole lot of time thinking about. And so they can, they can cover over the reality that there are differences between what Roman Catholic popes have said. There were popes that specifically, clearly said the deuterocanonical books were not, in fact, canonical, um, that they were not scripture, and that there had, in fact, all the way up to the time of Luther, Cardinal Jimenez, the man that interviewed Luther um, early on in the period of the Reformation, he had written an entire commentary on the Bible where he had rejected the canonicity of, the, of what we call the Apocrypha. And so there were, there, were, there were competing views down through history, and they don't have to deal with that. They don't have to deal with the differences between earlier councils, local councils, and the Council of Trent in regards to some of the books in the Apocrypha, <clears throat> and which ones were referred to by which names, and so on and so forth. So there's, there's, it's very complex, and so the easiest thing for them to do is just throw the onus over on us and say, you, you prove a universal negative, basically. We're just going to assume that we have the authority to do these things. So the question that popped up, because Jerry and I had debated all this stuff at, at Boston College only a few days earlier, just out of the blue— uh, I had not researched this. I was just probing for a way to be able to illustrate what the real issue is. I said to Jerry, I said, Jerry, how did the man, how did a believing Jewish man living 50 years before Christ know that Isaiah and Second Chronicles were scripture? That's, that, that, that's the white question. I asked him, how did the believing Jewish man living 50 years before Christ know that Isaiah and Second Chronicles were scripture? Now, what this does is it, it forces the Roman Catholic to um, come clean with their presuppositions. 
Uh, because if they say he couldn't, then there's all sorts of stuff in the New Testament that doesn't make any sense. Jesus holds men accountable for what's found in the scriptures. And there's no argumentation between Jesus and the, and the Pharisees or even the Sadducees, because there are some people who would say the Sadducees had a limited canon. There's some evidence of that, but there's also contrary evidence, and so we're not certain exactly where everybody stood, and it might differ from Sadducee to Sadducee. So the, the point is the New Testament does not give us any evidence whatsoever of a controversy in the first century, in regards to what was and what was not Scripture, Jesus held men accountable. He said in Matthew chapter 20, 22, um, have you not read what God spoke to you saying? And then he quotes from the Pentateuch. And he's holding men living in his day accountable to what was written in Scripture as if it had been spoken directly to them. So if you say they couldn't know, then Jesus' argumentation doesn't make any sense. But if they say he could know, How? If they say it was the infallible Jewish magisterium, the infallible Jewish magisterium never accepted the apocryphal books of Scripture. We know what books they laid up in the temple 200 years before Christ, and they did not include the apocryphal books, some of which were still being written at that time. So it is very plain that the Jewish people did not accept the books that Trent has now defined as Scripture 1,546 years later, uh, but so you can't go with that because the canon they defined is different than the canon that Rome has defined. So which infallible magisterium is the infallible magisterium since they contradicted each other? So there's, there's really no good answer. Um, and so, so I asked this question, and now we're on the air on W, w uh, what was it, WMUZ? WEZE, WEZE in Boston, WEZE in Boston. And if you know anything about radio... Um, and I grew up doing radio, what you don't want is dead air. Because it's, and it's true today, if, if what you're listening to on, on the radio, on your, on, your, on your car or something like that, all of a sudden it just goes dead, what's the first thing you do? You go, you, you go looking for those stations. Uh, and, and so you don't want dead air. And I asked the question, and we've got dead air. I mean, Jerry just, I could see it. I, I can see it in my mind's eye. He had never been asked that question before. And so there's a couple moments of silence. And then, of course, the host steps in and says, well, we're going to take a break and we'll come back, continue talking about that. And so we did the commercial break, came back, and Jerry still did not have an answer because there really isn't an answer. Now, over the years since then, uh, I've heard people saying things like, <clears throat> well, uh, the only way he could have known was to use the Urim and the Thummim on the breastplate of the high priest, which were basically the divine dice. And sort of go, Genesis, <laughs> snake eyes, all right, you know? And, that's, and I'm, I'm, I've literally heard people saying, that's how, that's the only way you would have a mechanism of divine revelation to know the canon. Uh, for people living prior to Christ uh, under the Old Testament, wow. it was the Urim and Thummim on, on the breastplate of the of the high priest. Uh, they came up with that. Uh, but the point is, there were no angelic visitations. There were no golden plates coming down from heaven. If you've heard about the Council of Jamnia, that's after the time of Christ, and they were not voting about canonization or anything like that. The reality was that the, the books that we have in what we call the Protestant canon, it's the Hebrew canon, 
it's sometimes counted as 22 or 24 books because the minor prophets were all in one book and like Lamentations rolled up with Jeremiah and it was sort of how it was put on scrolls. And it was basically tied to the letters of the alphabet. So 22, 24, depending on how you count those things too. But the canon that we have had been laid up in the temple 200 years before Christ. And so to, to touch those scrolls made your hands unclean because they were holy. And so those have been laid up that that was that that had taken place no angelic visitations no councils nothing like that it was simply god working with his people and what's interesting is it's pretty much the same process in the new testament you you see for example it's called the muratorian fragment about 185 200 around in there it has about 85% in the new testament it's since it's a fragment we, we don't know what else might have been there, but it has about 85% of the New Testament uh, listed at that. Um, the Council of Nicaea takes place. The entire doctrine of the Trinity is being debated. Uh, obviously, Scripture is right in the center of all of this. And no one's sitting there saying, well, we have some unwritten tradition from, from Peter that says so-and-so. No, that the, the, the basis of the debate Read uh, Athanasius Contramundum. I'm, I'm sorry, Athanasius Contra Arianos against the Arians. And he is making his argumentation from Scripture, not from some unwritten oral tradition or anything along those lines at all. He is doing it from Scripture. And so by the time you have his 39th Festival letter in 367, um, which is, he gives no indication he's going, okay, I'm going to create a canon here. No. He's he's dealing with the fact that people have asked questions about other books, and so he gives this list. He's not creating a canon. It's about the same time period you have between the Old and New Testaments, and it's pretty much the same process. No angelic visitations, no councils coming down from, you know, and making taking votes and, and all the rest of this kind of stuff. It's pretty much the same same process going on there. And so the white question sort of exposes the fact that, uh, that Rome is assuming something that, that actually goes against Rome's conclusions. Um, and so uh, keep that in mind. You might be able to utilize that. Um, if I could recommend uh, the books uh, by Dr. Michael Kruger to you for the in-depth theological discussion of the nature of canon, because the, the, the key issue for us as um, non-Roman Catholics and non-Eastern Orthodox, uh, is to recognize that the canon is a theological reality before it's a historical reality. If we don't define what it is before we start looking for it in history, we'll always come up with erroneous conclusions. And so if you've seen Michael Kruger's books, grab them. If you haven't, uh, then you might want to also look up the YouTube video from the G3 conference where Dr. Kruger and I discussed these very issues on the canon. Uh, just a couple of years ago, two, three years ago at most, um, at the G3 conference. And so that's sort of a one hour, here's what the canon is. It's the, it's theology uh, sort of starter kit, shall you say, shall we say, uh, from the G3 conference that, that might be very helpful as well. I did have a chance to listen to that, um, that one hour uh, segment there, and it was good. Um, I also listened to another uh, sermon that you had preached where you had mentioned that Scripture by its very nature is authoritative, and kind of how we—the New Testament was handed down, and by its very nature, we recognize its authority, and it establishes itself in a sense. And so I just wanted to call and ask you that question. I had also had a chance to ask uh, Michael Brown that question. Um, It was over his YouTube live chat, 
and you guys gave very similar responses. It's kind of funny how that works out. So, um, <laughs> anyway, uh, one more, one more question that I'll get off the air. Um, are you, do you know if you are coming down to St. Charles, Missouri this year? I'm about an hour and a half from there and I yes. wanted to try to plan ahead if possible. Yeah. Believe it or not, uh, despite my detestation of traveling right now, um, uh, uh, I am. This will be year number twenty uh, at um, Covenant of Grace Church in St. Charles, and so I will be there. And um, then the plan right now is uh, I will be going from there to Pryor, Oklahoma. Uh, Derek Melton and the fine folks there in Pryor. We're going to drive from uh, St. Charles down to Pryor. And so I'll be doing a conference down there in, in prior the week after I'm in St. Charles. So uh, to, that's going to be all of my travel for the rest of 2020, which is amazing, uh, given that I uh, in 2019, I traveled 165,000 miles by air. Um, and, uh, 2020, uh, well, it's, everything's changed. So there you go. Right. Uh, but yeah, well, that'll be, for... that'll be the first, uh, the first full weekend in, um, in uh, December. Let me double check this here. So that would be the fourth, fifth and sixth of December is uh, when we'll be in St. Charles. And has he, do you, do you all, I'm assuming you do, obviously, what is the topic for this over those three days? I'm actually going to be uh, dealing uh, with the uh, the current social issues and um, uh, woke church and uh, all the all the stuff related uh, there to sufficiency of scripture in these days and things like that. So, well, brother, I really appreciate your ministry. Keep on keeping on, and I will definitely be praying for you. Okay, thanks, Trevor. God bless. Thank you. I'm okay. All right, but the, if I if I keep giving answers that long to each uh, question, it's gonna it's gonna be it's gonna be ugly. But uh, okay, let's talk uh, to uh, Michael. Hi, Michael. Hello, James. Uh, pleasure to speak with you. Yes, sir. I have a question regarding apparent contradictions in the uh, New Testament. Uh, we're studying right now Mark uh, twenty. Mark 8, rather, 28 through 34. And upon reading it, comparing it to Luke 8, I believe, 26 um, through 39, and Matthew, or, or sorry, and Mark 4, 35 through 520, there is a couple things, uh, whether it be the name of the uh, country that is Gadesser, I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce it, Gad Aranis, uh, as well as the number of the demons there. So I just wanted to see how would you approach when it comes to these apparent contradictions, um, expositing them and really uh, reconciling the text. Well, unfortunately, um, the okay. So uh, you, you said Mark, but it's actually Matthew. Matthew eight uh, twenty eight, um, and uh, so uh, it, it's next to impossible. Well, you know, actually, the synoptic thing here. Um, sometimes works for me and sometimes doesn't. Let me see if I can get uh, the synoptic thing to work. Yes, it actually worked. That's cool. Um, uh, Accordance has a synoptic module in it. People always, are always asking me uh, what what Bible program I'm using. I use Accordance. Um, and th- they have a synoptic one, so I threw in Matthew 8.28 and it popped up uh, Mark five one and Luke eight eight twenty six. So uh, there, there it goes. There it goes. I also would recommend um, for everybody who wants to do uh, synoptic studies and things like this. There is an English version of this. This is the Greek version, but 
Synopsis Quattro Euangeliorum. There's an English version that I thought I had in here somewhere, but oh, there it is. Just got to put them in the same place. Um, here is Synopsis Four Gospels, English edition. There, there are lots of uh, uh, what are called harmonies of the gospel or something like that uh, that are printed out there, and um, they're all worthwhile. Uh, this one is, I think, probably the most scholarly. Uh, that you can that you can get if if you want the a paper version, uh, this is just the Greek version of it, and they're published by the American Bible Society. Or again, if people like me are primarily utilizing um, electronic mech, uh, things, this is the same type of thing uh, that's available in the Synoptic thing. I um, I taught through the Synoptic Gospels for I think about eight years. Um, uh, at least a decade or so ago. Unfortunately, most of that is not available, uh, to my knowledge anyways. Uh, it probably was recorded, but there would probably be some big holes in it, and it's not available online. Um, I should ask if the tapes are actually hiding in a storage room someplace, and I'm not sure who we could ever find to digitize all that stuff. But I, I taught through the uh, Synoptic Gospels because I felt it was vitally important for people to recognize um, how to deal with these issues because it is one of the primary approaches that people use to try to inculcate uh, distrust in the text of Scripture. And that's because most people don't read across the columns uh, as you would have, for example, in synopsis of our Gospels. So they don't see the differences. They don't see um, that Matthew has the uh, Gadaria versus the Gerasenes. Uh, Mark and Luke have Gerasenes. This, 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 now, there, are, there is a textual variant there, I, I note as well. Um, but the textual variants are almost always because a scribe sees the same thing. Um, and so they are trying to harmonize things. And in fact, um, when you have like the, uh, the Greek version here, uh, and you look at the bottom of the page, you will very, very frequently find textual variants, just a, a few manuscripts. But when you look at what the variant is, you realize it's because the, the uh, scribe, knows what the parallel passage is in one of the other synoptic gospels. And there's a, there's a, a an attempt to uh, harmonize them. Uh, that happens literally hundreds of times uh, when you, when you pay close attention. Anyway, so <clears throat> we went through, you really have to spend, I probably spent three weeks, maybe a month at the start discussing the fundamental issues that you have to nail down to do any of this kind of, of studies, specifically in regards to the nature of um, the nature of the Gospels, what are the Gospels, and then dealing with the issue of uh, ipsissima verba and ipsissima vox. It's, these are Latin phrases that ask the question, do you hear the voice of Christ in these words or the very words of Christ in these words. And I did a presentation again, just like in the last caller uh, at G3. This was before G3 moved from the church, from praise mill to the convention center. Uh, so I think it was the second year that I was there uh, on this subject. 
and it's still i saw it i i looked up the the video within the past few months uh so it's available on youtube if you go to g3 and i think if you put my name in and harmonization it'll probably pull it up i think uh is what is what i use to grab it uh and so i can go into a little more obviously much more detail and give examples. This wasn't one of the examples I used, but it's similar to one of the examples that I used in uh, looking at uh, the foundational issues of how to look at the synoptic gospels in particular. And of course, there are all sorts of issues in regards to their relationship to one another. It's a huge amount of literature, huge amount of literature uh, on the subject of the alleged uh, dependence of Matthew and Luke on Mark. That's the common theory today. Um, I hold to literary independence. I think introducing literary dependence introduces a huge number of, of questions that have really no meaningful answers. But to look at this particular uh, issue, for example, um, names of areas around the uh, Sea of Galilee not only changed over time, but because of the numbers of different languages that were spoken by people coming and going in those areas, the issue of the Gerizines or Gadarenes isn't an issue at all. Uh, you can find both terminologies being used, and and the reality is, and I I saw this firsthand when I was there in 2018, thankfully I had that opportunity, um, to recognize that <laughs> Uh, trying trying to hold, you know, today we would have a map that would have coordinates and dividing lines between areas. Um, you know, I have on my phone, I have an app where uh, stuff is happening in neighborhoods. And so you know, it'll, it has strict dividing lines between where these places are. The reality is there's no signs that actually make those divisions, but it's just sort of custom. Uh, there, nothing like that existed back then. So that kind of uh, thing, it, it, I don't see as, as an issue at all, especially because you could talk to one person in one city that would look across the lake and say that mountain is is in, in the region of the Gerizines and then walk over to the next city, literally walk over to the next city five minutes away and find someone say that's the Gadarenes. Uh, and it's not that someone was right or wrong. It's just how you're looking across the lake. Uh, so that's not that's not an issue. The other the only other issue, I, as I understand it, is the uh, whether there was more than one. And again, this is just simply a matter of how things are recorded. If there is a if there is only interaction with one who is specifically uh, delivered, uh, then again, uh, how this would be recorded, why. Uh, Matthew would record things in a, in one way almost every time. Uh, and in fact, looking at it very briefly here, it happens here too. Notice something. Almost every time when Mark records the same incident as Matthew, Mark's recording of it will be longer than Matthew's. Because Matthew is going to be doing, Matthew is not only going to be having a longer gospel, but he's going to be doing a bunch of, he's going to be recording a bunch of Jesus' teachings that Mark does not even touch upon. So everybody, every author has to determine how big is this book going to be? How, how long am I going to go? 
And so it's interesting that when uh, you have uh, Mark and Matthew recording the same incident, uh, Mark always gives more information. That's, and the illustration that you'll see in the G3 presentation, if you look it up, is I used um, the story of the uh, healing of the, of the daughter of the ruler. Uh, because um, there's a whole middle section where of the woman with the issue of blood that touches Jesus' robe that Matthew just takes out. He just doesn't even, doesn't even deal with it. Um, he uses, I think, a third of the words that Mark does to record the same incident. And so what you see in that is what you have here as well. Um, and that, that is the issue of telescoping when, uh, when you, you report an event. Um, and, and everybody sees this today. Uh, everybody sees this today. Um, when you see a, an article come across, say, your um, Twitter feed, your Facebook feed, what you're going to get is you're going to get like a summary. You're going to get a synopsis. And then what's at the bottom? Read more. And so when you hit the read more, it's either just going to continue that or it's going to give you an entire article that the synopsis was just a summary of. So if you find out that uh, there was a, well, sadly, uh, how many, how many people was it? uh, 50 people over the weekend shot in Chicago, eight killed. That's about average anymore every weekend in in Chicago. Um, But you see those types of brief uh, uh, paragraph and then when you go to the whole article, you discover that there were other people injured in this way or this many people stabbed or something like that. And you have other information that is provided uh, at that particular point in time. So we have this similar type of thing happening uh, even today in that type of a, of a, of a context. So uh, in all of these situations, you, ha- you have to know, you have to ask yourself the question, what was the author's intention? What was he attempting to communicate? Uh, is he telescoping? Is he abbreviating? Is he summarizing? Um, is it appropriate for Matthew, for example, um, when talking about uh, Jesus going into Jerusalem and the cursing of the fig tree? Is it okay for him to put that all into one story? And then somebody else says, well, actually, part of the story took place one day and part of the story took place the next day. Uh, I think those are perfectly valid things. We all do it every day, and nobody accuses us of of lying. Uh, if you're driving home and a bunch of stuff happened at work today, and your wife calls and you give her a a four sentence summary, and then when you get home over dinner, you talk for half an hour and you expand upon a bunch of things. No one's going to say, Oh, you lied to her in the phone on the phone in the car. But that's what they do with the Bible uh, is they will utilize standards that are not actually meaningful standards. Um, and sometimes also use modern standards that they did not utilize back then. Uh, again, for example, having absolute lines on maps as to exactly what a certain region was is not something that anybody back then would have just looked at you going, what are you talking about? Uh, because they just, that, that's not something that would be part of their experience. So I, I do sort of wish that at least those first four weeks or four or five weeks that I did on the background stuff uh, were available. I, I might have to actually look into seeing if the, those are around. So I'm not sure how anybody would find them, honestly. Um, but um, that is really important stuff in regards to 
understanding the background of the um, study of the Synoptic Gospels. Yes, sir. Thank you for your ministry, Dr. White. Appreciate oh. your answering the question. All right. Thank you. All right. God bless. Bye-bye. Bye. And uh, we'll uh, idle that one out. There you go. Because um, it's going to be tough to get to all the rest of them here. All right. Uh, let's talk to Christopher in Georgia. Hi, Christopher. Hello, Dr. White. Uh, I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller. I've been a, a student of your ministry for a long time, and I was going to Bob Jones University uh, back in 2008, and I met a brother who had grown up a Ruckmanite. And at that time, I was bewitched by uh, King James Onlyism. And when we started talking, I thought that I could learn a whole lot from him because he grew up in it. I was saved at 21. <laughs> and uh, he told me, well, you should read this book called The King James Only Controversy. So I did, and that showed that started me on the path of deprogramming from that <laughs> deprogramming, uh, false teaching. Yes, deprogramming. But it took It took three whole semesters of, uh, excuse me, four whole semesters of ancient Greek to actually deprogram me all the way. Wow. But now I've kept up with this brother on Facebook for all these years, and he posts stuff um, and comments on posts that questions whether even the first part of the Bible is real, is true. And I fear that he may have jumped from one ditch of Ruckmanism into the other ditch of Doubting the Bible. Yeah, uh, yep. it was a few weeks ago. Uh, actually, almost a couple of months ago, I posted uh, something, a tweet that you had responded to. The tweet was, "Yes, God kills people in the Bible, lots even." What is surprising is how many Christians tried to apologize for God's behavior, mm. and you said that's because there are few people who even come to the firm conclusion, "My sin is so heinous before God that He always has the right." To destroy me at any point. Well, when I reposted that, uh, this brother started doing like he does on a lot of posts. Uh, he starts out, you know, God drowns babies in the flood. When I interacted with him on the post, he uh, talked about how, uh, can I just read the quote because I don't know how to summarize it. Well, try try uh, try said, to summarize it because we've got we've, we've got uh, <laughs> I, I, I can't yes, can't sir, read the yes, whole sir. thing. Yeah, and he does go on for a long time in his post because he wants to drown you in all of the stuff that he knows. It says, "I see them as problematic because they're cultural ideals and not eternal ones." Let me give you two examples. First, you have the flood. There are other works like the. Atrasis and the Epic of Gilgamesh. Right. He goes on to say, yes, there was a flood. It was the Black Sea Deluge. The issue is, how is it interpreted by the biblical authors? It says the biblical authors took historical events and provided their own theological coloring. And he says, Genesis 1-11 through have, has ancient motives and stories are borrowed, changed in the biblical text. Right. At the same time, you have to see pagan influence on other parts of, he calls it, the Hebrew Bible. And my question is, are there resources that a person who is interested to know can read those resources, study those resources that, uh, you know, honor the Scripture and say it is, you know, the Word of God, it is inerrant, because his big thing now is the Bible is not inerrant. Right. He says that's okay, and I'm still a Christian, and he's constantly 
putting forth, I'm still a Christian, I just don't believe the Bible is inerrant, right. and I know there's a danger from once you start down the road of the Bible is not the Word of God all the way through, you can end up believing stuff that's just totally against the Bible, or you may not you may not have really been saved, and that's what I'm yeah. worried about. Well, uh, there is there is absolutely no question about the fact that uh, Ruckman's um, Ruckman's teachings and preachings have created all sorts of atheists uh, who, having bought into that kind of um, perspective, ran directly into the buzzsaw of the reality of the history of the Bible and things like that, and the wheels came off, and as you said, they just swerved right across the road into the other side and uh, and threw it all away. And that's the number of people like that is sadly legion. There are many, many people who have experienced exactly that. that will have nothing to do with the faith today whatsoever. Um, and that's because that kind of uh, crass, and I'm not even, even going to use the term fundamentalism because Ruckman, as you know, uh, yes, goes far beyond what you what would be appropriate to even uh, attribute to quote unquote fundamentalism. Uh, but um, fundamentalism as a whole does struggle with this because rather than engaging with, for example, the Graf Wellhausen documentary hypothesis and the flood of liberal interpretation of the Old Testament and all those other things that. I had to deal with uh, going to seminary, and some of my professors were promoting it, others were not. But instead of dealing with those things from a believing perspective, what fundamentalism does is just don't listen to those people. Don't interact with it. Don't think through it. And so when they, if they have a problem with the church, if they get hurt in the church, whatever, all of a sudden they've got a reason to no longer believe. And that unfortunately happens a great deal. Um, there is a article that a student of mine wrote 18 years ago. Now they're looking at it. Colin Smith uh, wrote uh, a critical assessment of the Graf Wellhausen documentary hypothesis. It is on our website. If you just look in, if you just put in Wellhausen, W-E-L-L-H-A-U-S-E-N, uh, that will pull that up if you want to grab that. There are numerous uh-huh. um, books that have been published by conservative, believing, yet scholarly Old Testament uh, authors, um, you'll find, uh, for example, if you, uh, if, if you drop a line to uh, some professors at uh, the Master's Seminary or at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, for example, um, uh, you'll and ask for resources along these lines they'll probably have entire bibliographies that they pass out to their students that they can just send to you in electronic format or something along those lines. Um, uh, you might, uh, he's not an Old Testament guy, but but he would probably have something like this. Uh, Dr. James Anderson at Reformed uh, Theological Seminary in Charlotte. Just contact the, the TMS office, the Master's Seminary office, and ask for their Old Testament folks. And, and I, I'm pretty certain there would be entire bibliographies of of books available. I've spoken, you know, I think it was April April of last year. I spoke at a conference in Northern California. I'm, I apologize that the names aren't clicking with me, but I th- my recollection was that the other one of the other speakers 
at that conference uh, was dealing with Old Testament archaeology, and I thought he was from Masters, and I'm sorry that the name is escaping me right now, but we've had COVID since then, so there you go. Um, I haven't, but everybody else has. Um, And um, so, yes, there are things out there, but I have lamented the reality that in many ways we we gave Old Testament studies over to the liberals 150 years ago or more. And hence there is a huge amount of literature that is just simply based upon assuming that the Old Testament is nothing but a very poorly redacted, cobbled together mess of stuff. And from a Christian, from a Christian perspective, you have, there's one real problem with that. Jesus plainly did not believe that. And so the the weirdness is that you have people who call themselves Christians who, when pressed, will say that Jesus' view of the Old Testament just demonstrates that he was a first century Jew. And so when you really push some of these folks, they don't they're they're loath to say it openly, but what they're really honestly saying is Jesus was a first century Jew, he had wrong ideas. We have grown past him. And uh, you know, once you get to that point, that's that's the tipping point over into um, the unbelief that you see in the United Methodist Church, in many branches of the United Methodist Church, PCUSA, Union Theological Seminary, all the, the mainline denominations that have died a thousand deaths are now the walking zombies of the theological world. Um, it all started with that kind of a, a, a first steps and in, inevitably led to event eventually leads to Jesus is truly not God. He didn't rise from the dead, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the, the death of those denominations. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's, that's an important issue um, uh, on, on many fronts. And so, yeah, there is good information out there. Gleason Archer and other people like that, you know, and you're going to find differences amongst people, uh, even amongst believing Old Testament scholars as to exactly how they handle things. And one of the reasons for that is you're dealing with one of the oldest extant texts there is. Uh, but the yeah. idea that the idea that that well, so we've got Gilgamesh, and that automatically means that the Old Testament's borrowing from this. That whole mindset uh, comes from a uh, uh, world religions theory that basically says. There can't be revelation, so if there are any similarities, that's obviously evidence of pure borrowing. And so, mm. as Christians, looking at this in the light of the of the empty tomb, um, which changes everything, uh, when we look at that, we go, well, okay, what you've got in Gilgamesh or any of the other, what's called the, um, uh, the um, where, I don't have it in here. Yeah, I have it. I have it in the other room, uh, but the the collections of writings that exist the ancient called the ancient Near East, uh, uh, uh-huh. A N E the the writings of the A N E the ancient Near East. Uh, you can find all sorts of similarities between things. That doesn't mean that everything was just borrowed from everybody else. And if there had been a flood, my goodness, you would expect there to be all sorts of legends and 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 examples uh, of that. And there are. Uh, but we as moderns look back and say, oh, that means they were all just making it up, rather than that being evidence of the continued echoes of an amazing event in human history. Uh, so, yes, there are uh, a number of, of works on that. Like I said, I, I apologize. If someone could pull up um, the um, 
if someone could pull up the uh, what I did, I think in April of 2019 in Northern California, uh, the the uh, conference that I did, uh, maybe that's still online someplace, and then I, I'd be able to give you a more specific name uh, because the fellow was really good, and I just I, I just it's not it's not clicking with me. Uh, right now, and I, I suppose I should look at Twitter because uh, someone, maybe somebody out in Twitter, is reminding me, uh, is is telling me what. Uh, uh, nope, nobody's helping me out in Twitter. Um, <laughs> but uh, if someone remembers, uh, that would that'd be great, and I'll I'll give you that information too. But give uh, give the okay. master give the master seminary a call. I'm sure they'd be more than happy to put you in touch with their Old Testament guy, who I'm sure has a electronic bibliography sitting on his computer or his phone <laughs> uh, to uh, to ship off to. I do not have that that bibliography. It would be something that would be worthwhile to have, but I I don't have it. Sure. I thought it was April of 2019. I I, I thought uh, I, I because I I rode bike um, with a friend of mine up there and. Uh, uh, and uh, so that's what I was thinking. But anyways, hopefully that's somewhat helpful to you, brother. Yes, it was very much. And I want to thank you again for your ministry. And you helped me to understand a lot of things. And I believe it was your first caller that said they were about to join a Reformed Baptist Church. Well, I, after 14 years, am about to join a Reformed Baptist Church uh, after their new believers or new new members class opens back up. Excellent. And, uh, it's. It's kind of funny because back in 2012, the year that I graduated, they started reforming from fundamentalism, which they're still fundamental in their view of the Bible. And uh, I've always believed the doctrines of grace, and I'm very grateful that you stand up for those doctrines. Well, thank thank you, you, and you have a blessed night. All right, thank you. God bless. Thank you very much. All right, uh, two more calls. We're gonna and uh, Jordan, Chris, we're gonna have to be brief because we've. We've, uh, we, we've, we've, we're, is it only, it's only three o'clock? Wow. Why? Well, like uh, Rich says, it just seems like I've been talking forever. <laughs> it's true. Uh, when I start talking, it does seem like I have been talking forever. So, uh, we'll, we'll try to be brief. Let's talk, uh, with, uh, Jordan's been, been hanging on for nearly an hour. Sorry, Jordan. I, 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 I became sort of Professor White again today, and I started giving more information than I think some of the callers actually wanted, but I apologize. <laughs> well, I was actually enjoying a lot of it because I am interested in Roman Catholicism and textual criticism and all that stuff. And so, and I've also read your book, King James Only Controversy, so I was able to follow along with pretty much all of it, oh, uh, good. thankfully. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to, and, and thank you for taking my call as well. I just wanted to ask a question or two regarding the intercession of Christ. When does Christ begin to intercede for the elect? Well, uh, yeah, that's a that's an the, the temporal aspect um, is very interesting. Um, very clearly, you have um, the necessity of the sacrifice first. So there is a there is a temporality it's not just a logical order but to just as the incarnation death burial and resurrection of Christ was certain in the mind and intention of God and the decree of God so that the old testament saints 
could still have peace with God in light of what God knew he was going to accomplish in their behalf in Christ. In When you talk about intercession, there is something in the nature of intercession that you, you know when 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 you talk about what the high priest did in the uh, in the sprinkling of the blood upon the mercy seat the reality of the sacrifice is being presented it is it it has to be a given and so in the eternal intentions of god certainly the sacrifice is a reality and hence can be pointed to in that way, but it was necessary for the high priest to enter into the holy place and to offer that blood. The, the sacrifice would not have been completed uh, without that aspect of it. And, and so when you, when you see the lamb standing before the throne as if slain in Revelation chapter 5, that slaying took place in history. And the reality of the basis of the intercession is intimately connected with that historical accomplishment. So you can say there is a temporal aspect to that, but that always has to be kept in balance with, this is the now and the not yet of all of Pauline theology. It has to be kept in balance with the reality that from God's perspective, um, its certainty is an eternal certainty. I mean, once God, and, and even when you say once God decreed to do X, Y, or Z, that's you're, you're we're, we're stuck with our human language at this point because we, we have to use verbs. We have to use temporality. We have to use past, present, future, and everything else. And so, um, to, to answer the question, uh, in temporal reality, after the resurrection and and the entrance of Christ into the presence of the Father, in the eternal uh, reality of the fulfillment of the decree of God, um, the benefits that would flow from his sacrificial death and his intercession would be available to every person who is a member of the elect who is chosen by, by God in that way, even those under the uh, Old Testament system. Um, so, yeah, uh, that's that's the only okay. that's the only way you can really try to hold the two aspects together because what what we're talking about is God's decree eternally, and then His accomplishment in time, and those two those two are are always not in contradiction but in tension with one another primarily because of our language. We have to use language that is time-based, and we can't, we can't leave that and start using language that isn't time-based to talk about eternal realities because that's not, that's not our capacity yet. Maybe someday it will. I don't know. Uh, but right now it's not. Uh, if I may ask a very quick follow-up question on the very same topic. Uh-huh. Uh, so does that mean that Christ at least in a temporal aspect, after he uh, resurrected and ascended to heaven and went into the holy place, there he is intercede. He begins to intercede for all of the elect, spe- even 
though those elect people have not all come to faith yet and therefore do not have peace with the Father. So Jesus is interceding for people who for a time do not have peace with the Father and are at animosity with God. Well, now now you're moving to the other issue, and that is the fact that the elect exist in the mind of God as an identifiable group even before they exist in time. Uh, otherwise, uh, there is no concept of election. Election becomes impersonal. So um, was a, is a person who is saved today, who is described, as, as, as Paul would say, I, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. Well, the elect exist. They've existed in God's decree from eternity past, but they did not come into existence by God's decree until a point in time, once God created, and there have been thousands of years that have passed. Um, and so, once again, it's the exact same issue before we were talking about in regards to Christ and his actions. Now you're dealing with an even sharper contrast, because with, with Christ, he's an eternal person and then takes on human flesh. So, theologically, we have to, as Orthodox Christians, recognize that Christ has not eternally been flesh, and yet he today is the God-man. Does that mean that there has been a fundamental change in the nature of the second person? No, there does not. And yet some people today are actually trying to make an objection to the existence of the elect in the purposes of God based upon the very same thing that would cause them to have to deny the reality of the Incarnation, and that is well, but we didn't exist when Christ died, so there could not be an actual um, decree that would involve our union with Christ in his death, because we don't experience regeneration. We're called the enemies of God until a certain point in time in our life. And so, to me, it just seems like there are some people who are so focused upon making man's experience of what God provides in Christ the central defining issue, that they're actually willing to compromise the accomplishment of Father, Son, and Spirit in their own self-glorification based upon the free will of man. That, that, that really seems to be what a lot of people are willing to do. It's, a, it's, it's an astonishing thing, but I, I see it all the time. And so there are some who would, would argue, well, there, there couldn't have been a, an actual decree um, that would cause these individuals uh, to have a, the certainty of their regeneration and the certainty of their peace with God because of what Christ did for them, because they don't exist when Christ is interceding before the Father. So once again, the issue is who's united with Christ? And is that union with Christ something that um, is sequential based upon the act of regeneration? Or is it that the, the lamb stands as if slain before the father so that everyone who is in him will have peace with him, even if in God's same decree, we all experience uh, life beginning as fallen sons and daughters of Adam. We know what it means to be separated from the life of Christ. And then we know as well that it was, as, as Paul said, uh, it was, it was God who uh, raised me up. It was God who, who chose that time. And, and of course, Paul, <laughs> 
Paul could sort of go, and it was really obvious, <laughs> you, know, you know, ended up on the ground, blinded. Um, uh, I wasn't looking for him. He came for me. So it's a little bit easier for Paul to, to point to that reality. But that actually is the reality with all of us. And just as it was God's intention, that's the man I'm going to use. I'm going to save him at this point. This is how I'm going to save him. That's the reality with all of all of the elect. And so um, the idea of, uh, I think there are some who are actually trying to introduce the idea that, well, but having Christ interceding for you doesn't necessarily mean you have peace with God because there's a period of time where he's interceding, but you don't have peace with God as if the decree does not include regeneration and uh, union with Christ and, and all the other aspects. And so they're trying to cut apart everything that, that God does. It's the, the human centeredness of it to me is, is frightening because I really wonder what causes someone to want to so humanize the divine work um, that they would introduce this kind of, uh, of distinction. It's, uh, it's scary to me. It really honestly is scary to me. Uh, rather than, it would just seem to me that the, the redeemed heart just goes, oh my, I didn't deserve any of this. It has been so perfectly provided for me. I, I am such a recipient of grace that all I can do is, is bow down in awe and wonder. Um, but there are people that, for very sundry reasons, uh, go other directions. I went long again. Um, uh, I, I apologize, <laughs> yeah. but but um, uh, but uh, but there I, you go. I appreciate the in-depth uh, explanation. Um, I'm trying to learn more about Calvinism. I used to be a Calvinist myself, but I was only a Calvinist for three years, so that isn't worth anything. Uh, so, just trying to learn more about the actual perspective, but I do believe faith is an actual gift from God. I do believe in it, and I actually do believe in a fixed number of the elect as well, and God is going to rescue all of them, and none of them will be lost. So, uh, okay. But there are some differences that I was having in regard to the atonement and Christ's inter- intercession. Well, keep in digging on it. how a Calvinist would understand it. Okay. And so. Yeah. Um, John Owen wasn't trying to address you specifically, but if you get an opportunity to to dig into uh, his materials, he's pretty deep. Uh, I'd, I'd recommend him to you. Okay? Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you very much Thanks, for uh, going into the depth that you did. Uh, it helped me out. I appreciate it. You have a good day, sir. Thank you. God bless. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Last call. Sorry, Chris. Oh. Hey. Hey, are you there? Yes, I am. Did you, But can oh, you hear great. that? It sounds like the audio is... Yeah, it sounds like the audio is really terrible. Is that coming through on your end too? It is, but it sort of stopped. It 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 set. Well, now it's starting again. It, it sounds either like a a little fifty cc motorcycle behind you, or a whoopee cushion. One of the two. I'm not sure which. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the uh, that's the phone line. I'm not sure what's happening. There. <laughs> All right. Uh, so let me uh, let me fire up a question to you. I uh, I was watching the videos by a guy named uh, Kevin Thompson or something like that. Yes. He seems to be a bit of a uh, fundamentalist uh, provisionist. Um, uh, I might be getting my uh, my names wrong there, but uh, yeah, this, no, 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 uh, Kevin, Kevin, no, no, Kevin Thompson was was doing anti-Calvinism videos long before Leighton Flowers came up with the term provisionism. So I'm, I'm not sure what he would call himself along those lines. Okay, good. So, so then you're familiar with this. So do you mind if I just uh, read you a quick uh, quick quote? Okay, oh, hold on. And then uh, and then just uh, let you respond to it, and that'll probably be the best way. Um, so here's the quote. 
Died to save is not a Bible phrase or concept. It is therefore senseless to pit it against die to make men savable, since the premise is false to start with. This false dichotomy indicates confusion about what saves. Sinners are born of God by the will of God after they receive Christ. Unbelief condemns a person not because it is an unforgiven sin, but because it is the exclusive point of access to the grace. Uh, the reference he's given is John 1, 12 through 13, and Romans 5, 2. Um, okay. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you what, Chris. Um, uh, I've done videos uh, in response to this fellow before. He's extremely confused. His exegesis is normally upside down. I I don't have enough of a context there to really interact with much of what is what is being said, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, so I, I don't know exactly how to, uh, if you could summarize exactly what part of that you're, you're, you want to interact with, because is it, it sounds like he's just simply saying, um, that, well, I'm, I'm not sure what he's saying. I'll be honest with you. That was too short to really know what, what his point was in it. Do you have... Uh, sure. The, the part that really concerned me the most was the, the part about uh, died to save is not a biblical phrase or concept. Died to save. Uh, that it died to save. Yeah, that Christ died to save. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. Let me respond to that. We're going to have to take you down because uh, the, the phone line is, is really, really, really bad. And <coughs> don't feel badly about that. My phone was telling me yesterday that for the next couple of days, we're, we're going to be having solar storms. And uh, so uh, that's it's, it's 2020. Why not? Um, <laughs> so, so uh, the the issue is, uh, and I'll, I'll just go ahead and, and and drop the call, and we'll we'll finish up with this. But thank you, Chris, for your call. The issue is, can you properly speak of an intention of the Father and the Son in the death of Christ? Uh, Thompson and his ilk have such a man centered concept and understanding, where God is just making things possible that you can't even talk about the intention of the Father and the Son in the Incarnation, Atonement, anything like that. Um, what These folks have a, a, a deep aversion to the theocentricity of the Gospel, to any discussion of what God's intentions were from eternity past, seeing the, the, the interconnectedness of everything that God has done. And again, it's, it is so focused upon man that it it becomes frightening to me. I don't understand how a person who has been truly changed by grace, uh, can have such a dogged desire to limit grace by man's capacities and by man's decisions. Um, that's why I can simply say to folks, you know, if you'll just you know, spend more time uh, reading Isaiah, reading uh, reading Romans, um, and then the the reality is their perspective did not give us the Reformation. Their perspective would have their perspective shares much more with Roman Catholicism than it does with the reformers. And so, if you read uh, some of the the you know I, I think of Sharnock and I and Owen and obviously Calvin and many of the Westminster divines and and people who will just who will emphasize the beautiful divine unity the 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 unity of God's intentions uh, 
um, eventually you just get it. You know, uh, you, you can't force somebody to it. As long as someone is doggedly um, in love with their own alleged free will, there's there's not much you can do for them. You just you you speak as as you can um, in that situation. Um, <clears throat> let me just look here. Were you able to find anything, uh, Rich? Couldn't find anything, huh? Um, I have a uh, I have a friend. Uh, if I had my messages program up, um, let me just do something with it because there is one thing I'm going to. Uh, and I was just messaging with him. Uh, unfortunately, um, it's not going to come up on this side, so I'm not going to be able to do that. Anyway, I'll I'll look around and see if I can find it. And try to remember uh, for the next uh, the next program. Um, <clears throat> let me just go ahead and uh, we we'll make it a, a jumbo edition. We'll finish up at three thirty. I was uh, looking at, uh, I did look at Twitter, and one, I was mentioning something to Rich before the program started, and then uh, something was sent actually during the program. Good grief, Twitter is active today. Um, There it is. This was about one hour ago. Um, I have not been following... uh, any of the uh, posted articles. Um, And some people might ask me why in light. And and the only reason I'm going to address this is, is because of what happened with the Ergen Canner situation years and years ago. The, uh, the reason that we spent the time and effort we did on the Ergen Canner situation was because Ergen Canner was claiming to do exactly what I do. Oh, by the way, I'll forget this. Um, Mike Ulrich, thank you very much. Mike, your beautiful piece of art uh, arrived at the offices. We, Rich and I were saying that'll look great in the new uh, the new studio that we're going to be putting together. Uh, Mike Ulrich sent a beautiful... Uh, how big is that thing? It's yay, yay size. No, no, no. I... Yeah, it's it's it, it it's it's that big, beautiful piece of art that Mike did. Thank you very much for for that. We did what we did with um, the Aaron Canner situation because Aaron Canner was claiming to debate the very people that I actually was debating, and so once I had direct knowledge of the claims that he was making, um, and the falsehood of those claims, uh, claims to have been born uh, <clears throat> places other than Sweden. <laughs> Uh, raised as a jihadist when he was raised in Ohio from the age two onwards, born in Sweden, um, claiming to speak Arabic when he was producing gibberish and and, and all the rest of this stuff. Um, Since I had that knowledge of information and because he was claiming to debate Shabir Ali and and people that I actually have debated multiple times on multiple continents, um, we had to uh, be involved in that. Uh, right now, a, a great deal of conversation is is going on, has been going on for a couple of years. I have been aware of accusations literally for years uh, relating to the late Ravi Zacharias. And um, someone sent just an hour ago uh, article from Christianity Today. Uh, someone had sent something from Julie Roy's, and so there is a 
groundswell of conversation um, regarding Ravi Zacharias. There have been sort of three areas that I have seen raised, three areas of concern that I've seen raised. And of course, Ravi only died a matter of weeks ago. I think it was what, May? Something like that um, of, of this year. Um, one had to do with credentials, claimed credentials, claimed teaching experience. Uh, one had to do with uh, some type of uh, relationship decades ago. And then the most recent stuff had to do with more recent, um, I guess what we'd call is electronic communications with women. And I have no knowledge of any of these things. I never met Ravi Zacharias. I never spoke with Ravi Zacharias. Um, Ravi Zacharias Ministries, RZIM, um, was, it, it continues to be very much involved in apologetics to Muslims. And so, starting in 2006, for probably four years or so, I was involved with a group that was studying uh, Islam, and in fact, uh, my uh, the time that I had a Arabic tutor uh, was provided by that group that was associated with RZIM. My tutor wasn't, but the funding for that uh, was, and um, that's the extent of the connection we've had. Um, I think my um, strong strident, clear, uh, reformed commitments uh, minimized the connections uh, there, um, especially in regards to what I've done in regards to Roman Catholicism. In any case, um, I, don't, I don't know the truth or falsity of any of these accusations. Um, I am not going to be spending time digging into them. I will keep up with what is published from reputable uh, sources. The question these days is what is reputable? Um, I have a deep concern, especially when someone has now passed. <laughs> I have a deep concern about electronic accusation. I have talked about this on the program before that had nothing to do with Ravi Zacharias. When I've talked about God's law, God's law says you need to have human witnesses that you can cross-examine. This actually is relevant to what I said yesterday when I discussed this issue. And that is people who want to try to bring cosmic justice in this world very frequently will go beyond what God's law allows. If these things are true, God is the judge of all the earth and he will do right. And he will deal with each one of these situations in and through Jesus Christ. Okay. And there will either be punishment or the punishment fell upon Jesus Christ. And he bore it perfectly. So there will be cosmic justice done. Let's affirm that to start with. 
the issue with things like electronic, I, I remember over 10 years ago, hearing about a woman who was uh, attacked by political operatives who hacked her computer and put stuff on her computer. And I remember thinking then, man, this is going to be an issue for all of us. Um, as we become more and more interconnected, I'm not a computer expert. And I, I don't know all the ins and outs of this thing. I know more than your average bear. I mean, we were putting computers together for years around here to go and doing as cheaply as we could. I had to knew, do what a, know what a motherboard was. And I, I helped put computers together. I put some together for myself. So I'm not actually completely ignorant. And we still do that in some ways that rich is pointing at the computer he's using over there. Um, but when it comes to inter, to, to networking protocols and all that kind of stuff that is, is connecting everything together today, um, that's beyond me. And every time my computer starts doing something loopy, I sit there going, um, what? Oh yeah. My, my MacBook pro, we, we've, uh, went loopy, uh, on me when I came back from Tucson the first time. And I was very concerned because it was saying I had to do something. It's never told me I had to do it before. And I'm sitting there going, Man, this makes me wonder if I've been compromised, and you know what? I, I don't know what to do, and uh, ended up just being unplug all USB ports, plug it back in, it'll work fine. But the the point is, none of us, almost none of us, have the kind of computer expertise to be able to guarantee that what's actually on this, I'm the only one who's had access to it, and so I am very hesitant very hesitant to accept electronically based accusations. And, and people go, well, that means people can get, can get away with anything. No, it doesn't. God knows every protocol that's ever been made, okay? God knows computers better than anybody else does, okay? And what, what it does mean is, yes, people can get away with things electronically, in this life, but God knows. And the emphasis in God's law is the protection of the innocent, not the capturing of the guilty, because he already knows. That's one of the realities of all of us are fallen sons and daughters of Adam. We're already guilty already. That's a given. The issue is justice, and God knows exactly what we've done, what our motivations were, and everything else. He knows the truth of all these accusations himself. I am just extremely hesitant to utilize electronic stuff anymore. I mean, back when we back in 2010, 2011, when we were dealing with, with the canner situation. Deep fakes didn't exist yet. I mean, uh, all the, all the uh, video and stuff like that, we took from Canner himself. But now, man, now with this deep fake technology, that's scary. You can't even be certain that you're looking at somebody who you're, you're thinking you're supposed to be looking at. That's frightening to me. It really, really is. Um, and so 
I don't know what to say about these accusations. Um, I'm reading the same stuff that everybody else is reading. I'm just simply saying, uh, if it's primarily based upon electronic stuff, I'm slow. I'm hesitant to put a lot of weight into it. Um, even if people come forward and give testimony, okay. The problem we're dealing with now is that Ravi Zacharias is dead. And so you can't get the opportunity of cross-examination or anything like that at all. And so the question really becomes, what exactly is being accomplished here? What's the motivations? There's probably a lot of motivations out there. I mean, um, that great day is going to reveal a lot, isn't it? Um, and I say that to myself, too. That's going to reveal a lot. So to everybody who's asking the questions, because, like I said, I, I had seen this one and uh, Tom Askell's tag, Tom Buck, myself, Dr. Jordan Cooper, RZIM, um, and other people are, um, and, and I think, um, and I've seen some professors and things like that. Um, let's ask about what the motivations are and make sure that we are following a biblical pattern. Uh, and that, that doesn't, that, that, that means multiple witnesses and the opportunity of examining those witnesses. It's not just somebody just putting something up on a website is not a witness. There has to be examination and I'm not sure who's going to do the examination. That's the problem. We, we have now created the, the ecclesiastical court of the Internet. And I don't know what ecclesiastical court should be dealing with this. Um, I don't know what Ravi's church was or what his relationship to that church was or anything like that. So it's a, it's a mess. Uh, no, no two ways about it, but it needs to be addressed with a an appropriate eye to biblical standards, however that is going to end up fleshing out. So I thought I'd make a statement about, about that because I had seen multiple stuff over the past couple of days, and, and there you go. Okay, there's the program. Thanks for all the great phone calls, and we will see you next time on The Dividing Line. God bless. Mm-hmm.